This is the first step along your path to a gateway. A gateway beyond which is discovery. Your own discovery of reality, of truth, of who and what you are. Now a simple preparation because of the special audio techniques used. It's important that certain sounds reach your right ear and others your left ear. To be sure of this, you should be hearing my voice in your right ear at this moment. If you are not hearing my voice in your right ear, turn your headphones around now so that you are hearing my voice in your right ear. Now as you listen to the sound of ocean surf, move your body into a more relaxed position. Release any tensions or strain points. Move into whatever position is best for you. The sound of ocean surf, of waves, a natural sound most people find pleasing and relaxing. It is a sound of natural energy, the sound of waves of energy in action. You are going to learn to use waves of your own natural energy. You will learn to focus these and direct these energy waves that even now are a natural part of you. Howdy, folks, and welcome to another episode of your favorite podcast, That Would Be Rad. We're a podcast that majors in 80s and 90s nostalgia, comic culture, all things paranormal, and we minor in retro video games, tabletop RPGs like Dungeons & Dragons, pre-internet mysteries, and trying to raise our kids to be half as cool as we were back in the 80s. I'm your host, Woody Brown. And Tyler Bentz. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, just this is the Woody show. I thought you were going to say, and your other host. Yeah, no, man. It's because I did it differently than I typically do. I, you know, you did change most of the time. Just like muscle memory. Yeah. Today. I was like, oh man, I'm feeling kind of spunky. I got a fresh yeah. slice of gum. I'm just, feel, you know what I mean? I'm Which, rested. Man, during editing, I can hear you chewing like a maniac. Just going crazy over mm-hmm. here. Well, and I can hear you just like guzzling Red Bull. Oh, yeah. So. We're even, pal. Mm-hmm. Look, man, I'm not going to let you derail this because last week I tried to I tried yeah. to talk about this, and I swear we are not going to pivot. <laughs> we are not going to be like, I know you really were excited about. Mm-hmm. I'm even more excited now, so I'm not going to let it happen. And to be uh, frank, we're just going to dive straight into this week's topic, dude. I'm ready, man. I and and just so the the listeners know, I. I mean, I kind of know what he's about to get into, but for the most part, I have no idea. Yeah, it was a situation where, you know, Tyler has a lot of uh, more historical knowledge of this because he's been super into it for much longer than me. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I latch onto a topic, I'm kind of like, look, man, you're already going to know enough. Mm -hmm. I just let me deliver it to the listener, and then you just kind of come in here and there with, now, I want to say, now, I'm going to totally... Mess this up, but I'm driving away from the dock. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, listener, I want you to kind of go back in time with me a little bit. Close We're your eyes. We're talking about. A t- I'm sorry. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Relax yourself. Mm. This was around 1968. Okay. It's right before this intense race between global superpowers was about to begin. 
Ultimately, at the finish line of this race were powers beyond anyone's wildest imagination. It all kind of started when this guy, and I say it all kind of started, and we're going to kind of keep this conversational today because I don't feel like, you know, doing some kind of narration. Yeah. But there's this guy named Professor Victor Inu... Oh, and there's going to be plenty of mispronunciations. Starting with this one. Yeah. Professor Victor Inushin. Mm. The reason why he his name is just significant in all this is because he discovered these strange electrical discharges that were essentially bombarding undeveloped film. And in 1968, he was inside a secret laboratory at Kazakh State University in Alma-Ata of the Kazakh Soviet Social Republic. Mm. And he started to make what he believed to be breakthroughs on this isolated campus and really truly began to believe that he was in a sense capturing and had discovered what we now know pretty commonly actually as like someone's aura and being able to photograph them. Mm -hmm. And as the cold war and tensions, you know, started to get pretty well tense between the Soviet union and the United States. Oh yeah. There were, I mean, we're talking about a time, especially the late 60s, but of course, even into the 80s, but specifically, you know, you're coming off of the threat of nuclear war. I mean, you're talking about schools in the United States having uh, bomb shelters built into them and fallout shelters. You know, I actually, in uh, one of my previous jobs, I was a admissions recruiter for the university that I that I went to and I visited a school here in Georgia that still had the original radiation like sign and it, and it was a designated fallout shelter for the the like local area. Wow. Yeah. I'll try to find it see if I still have a picture of it. I thought it was so cool so I took a picture of it back you, then. You mean for like the whole town or just like the school? Yeah, for the original like little small community. I mean it's wow. much bigger now cuz it's like in Atlanta. Yeah. But despite I think what we believed as kids, you know, growing up in the 80s, when we think of the Cold War and stuff and and our time during that multi-decade sort of tension-filled Cold War so to speak. Yeah. You know, it was pretty common for us to think like, oh man, nuclear bombs and stuff. And that's what the Soviets are kind of pursuing. And that's what the U.S. are pursuing. But little did we know that there was powers, there were powers far greater and far more uh, important that were being experimented with and sought after. Rumors began to swirl. And we've kind of talked a little bit about some of the different things when we talked about the Montauk Project and how that influenced shows like Stranger Things. But rumors began to swirl about the Soviets' investment into paranormal research. And so the United States at this time, their Defense Department, began to scramble just to learn as much as they could possible. They discovered, though, that the Soviet interest in parapsychology stretching back to the 19th century had produced fascinating and certainly disturbing results. Even as uh, they were perfecting the first atomic bomb, husband and wife scientists Semyon and Valentina Kurlian used a technique of photographing with a high-frequency electrical field that I kind of mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. involving a specially, a specially constructed high-frequency spark generator in order to capture a bluish-green 
aura that surrounded certain people. They later concluded that this aura wasn't simply light. It had been a minute but detectable mass. It revealed, in other words, a potential hidden layer of reality. Now, real quick, listeners. Today is one of those days when our episode, we're going to get a little deep into some parapsychology and some concepts and stuff. But to be honest with you, it's sort of like, almost I could draw a straight line from what one of our listeners called the the Glimmer Man trilogy that we did recently, where we talked about the Michigan, um, not Michigan, where'd you go? Montana. Montana, yeah. The Montana mystery spot. Then that got us talking about the Glimmer Man phenomenon. Then that got us talking about the Predator. And then that, somehow, we started talking about dreams. And then ultimately, this is kind of where I ended up mentally thinking about these types of things. And so it begins with sort of this discovery of the aura and... Um, or aura, I should say, mm-hmm. and this potential hidden layer of reality and the discovery that Soviet scientists for a long time had already been studying this sort of quote-unquote invisible world that was all around us, different energy fields. Tyler, when we talked about, oh gosh, we've I know that we've mentioned this in so many episodes, it would be hard to list, but you've talked before about like the different visual spectrums of mm-hmm. light and how different animals and even insects and stuff produce these energy fields, but then also can can view within these different energy fields. Yeah, all these different you know spectrums of of it. it, it it's sort of like it, like for humans, it's sort of the unseeable frequency of light that our bodies are putting out because you know we're we're just you know vibrating molecules, atoms, and we you know we put out like a like an auric field, I think it's called, and so. A lot of people believe that, you know, other animals could see that or like, you know, possibly other beings. Mm-hmm. But it's it falls, I can't remember, remember if it's like above or below our our sort of, you know, bandwidth of mm-hmm. what we can see. But, um, and I but forget yeah. what the, per, the perceived like percentages of our visible spectrum. It's pretty small. But it's not, just, it's not just the visible stuff too. I mean, ocean life communicate through electromagnetic waves. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. we're inundated constantly with all of these different frequencies of mm-hmm. sound, light, you know, magnetic fields. I mean, do we even really need to go into the, like the, how does Bluetooth work anyway? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just but, magic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes, man, that really is one of those situations where it does feel that way if we don't understand it. Now, it takes some time to kind of dig in and and research. But what I love about today, we're diving into what some call like pseudoscience, what some call parapsychology, but the phenomenon of astral projection and even just transmitting information through even things like ESP, all, all these kind of phenomenon that exist, but... I've discovered in all of the research here, like, well, I say scientific, but I'm getting real sidetracked here. It's all right, man. The Soviets attempted a wordless transmission of information. They produced legions of articles on telepathy, and they were even interested in knowledge possessed by yogis, the masters in ancient practices. And 
We'll see this later. But it is important to note that a lot of these concepts are ancient practices. Yeah. And in some ways, that's both amazing, but as we'll come to see, terrifying. Yeah. So you've got these global powers. You've got the United States, you've got the Soviets, okay? It's very easy to kind of subdivide them into two huge ones because at the time, back then, that's basically how it was, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I felt, as a kid growing up in the 80s, you just felt like it was red, white, and blue versus red and yellow. I mean, it's Rocky Four oh, every yeah. day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Ruskies. Yeah, man, the Ruskies, all that stuff, which, man, I loved that movie when it came out. Yeah, me too. Here's a quote from a Defense Intelligence Agency report. It said that the major impetus behind the Soviet drive to harness the possible capabilities of telepathic communication, telekinetics, and bionics is said to come from the Soviet military and the KGB. This push intensified through the early 60s based on a Kremlin edict, and by late in the decade, there were 20 or more centers just dedicated to the study of parapsychological phenomena. And it was all funded by, you know, the country of Russia. Mm-hmm. And according to this report, this doctor, I think Dr. Leonid Vasiliev, mm-hmm. and he was like a professor at the University of Leningrad. Leningrad, is that right? Leningrad? Grad, yeah. Yeah, Leningrad. And he was able to conduct a successful long-distance telepathy experiment between Leningrad and Sevastopol. He said that the nature of brain energy that is produced was stubbornly elusive. The key to know how something as immaterial as thought could travel appeared to the Soviets to rest on what was known as bioplasma. Mm. I'm going to throw a couple terms at you today. This is the first one. Bioplasma is, they define it as an organized system of electromagnetic particles invisible to the naked eye. So what they're saying here essentially is just by using their minds, they were able to transfer information from one person to another in completely separate places. In other words, they were using the Bluetooth of their mind. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And not necessarily Bluetooth, but they like a mental fax machine from one person to the other. Mm -hmm. And research on this bioplasma then turned back to this professor in Yushin, and his colleagues to further refine the aura uh, photography that was, you know, taken years earlier. And they captured the images directly on film. And through new techniques of developing film, they were now able to identify colorful flares emanating from bodies. Yeah. And I read this cool, cool article, and it says basically if this, if there was a starting gun for this race, this was the bang. Yeah. Now, dude, I had never heard of this next thing. I'm not sure if you had, but it's fascinating. So back in the U.S., luckily, during this time, I guess they've had, like, there's a spy network. They're figuring stuff out. They're hearing remnants of the fact that the Soviets are dabbling in this stuff. You know, they're putting millions and millions of dollars. There's, like, what, 20 centers just dedicated solely to this. The U.S. is like, man, we don't want to get behind, right? Mm -hmm. So they are kind of like freaking out by this because they said if bioplasmic connectors to human beings had really been identified and isolated, it evoked a long-standing legend of what's called the silver cord. Mm. Uh, so 
and I mean, this is kind of off memory, but I, the silver cord is typically used as like a, um, again, it is looked at as like pseudoscience, but it's, you know, a lot of times like uh, when people would die in, in, uh, in operating rooms and stuff like that, people would see, claim to see this like little white or silverish like sort of like little line coming out of their head. And that's almost like, if you imagine it as like a tether to the human or, or the physical world and then sort mm-hmm. of the met- metaphysical or like, I don't know, even other dimensional, if you want to look at it that way. Um, yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, kind of. So the theory that I have mentioned and did mention probably this last time we talked about dreams in general, mm-hmm. in these beliefs about the silver cord, the world is sort of scaffolded with these so-called astral planes, like multiple planes that one spirit is capable of entering and traveling through. Mm-hmm. Um and you can move across long distances, even around the world, in just like a blink of an eye. It kind of supports sort of what, again, we talked about in dreams, in that sometimes you just feel like you're in a familiar enough place, but it's different enough to not be the world that you're in, sort of, and you're meeting strangers and all this. Yeah. The silver cord itself is said to be roughly one inch in diameter. And it tethers that spirit to its physical anchor, the human body. Yeah. To which yeah, it's like the a spirit, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it basically, if you're traveling, if you're spirit, there it is. <laughs> and there's probably a lot of people that are listening to this episode and they're just like, boy, howdy, man. We got into so the last time they were talking about, you know, manga. And they were talking about <laughs> silver cords, but that's this podcast. So welcome. Um, well, I, well, before you say, I mean, I think saying the word like spirit, I think that could, could turn people off. But yeah. if you don't like that, look at it as like you're, you know, sort of your astral being, the the person. Yeah, that that, would, they'll like that better. <laughs> well, no, I mean, whenever <laughs> whenever you dream that yeah, your consciousness, person, almost like your your, your, your whatever you want to call it, folks. Hey, look, if mm-hmm. you're listening to this show, you're open minded like we are, and if not, you've probably already turned us off. So, yeah, good day to you. Yeah. All right. So basically, it's this, and thank God for it. It's this attachment to your physical presence. That doesn't let you get lost, basically. It lets you come back to your body, and then now you're, you've got all this knowledge from your journey, potentially. Which, by the way, the, the, the sort of old, I, mean, I don't know if it'd be like a wives' tale, but sort of the, the old urban legend is if, if your silver cord gets snipped, you know, say while you're dreaming or, mm-hmm. or you know, lucid dreaming or astral projecting or whatever, then you can't come back. So your, your body's mm-hmm. basically in a coma because your spirit is like, floating out in the ether and it can't get back. And I want you listeners to remember that because we're going to kind of... Did I just ruin that, by the way? No, no, no. Okay. No, no, it's not ruined. It's just like that's... We're going to be... I'm going to be throwing a lot of stuff. And so, th- yes, that is a piece that we're going to kind of get into later, but put a pin in it, is all okay. I'm saying. Okay. After these messages, we'll be right back. Pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. vampire. You think you really know what's happening around here, don't you? We're fighters for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey, this is Woody. And this is Tyler. And you're listening to That Would Be Rad. And now, back to our show. 
So I'm going to introduce a, a new character to you guys, and it's a Dr. Eugene Bernard, or Gene Bernard. Mm. He was a professor at North Carolina State University, which isn't too far from us, actually. Mm-hmm. And same time period, late 60s. He, so he had this van on campus, okay? And it was a Volkswagen bus. And he kind of would keep it parked on campus. And you would have been able to spot it a mile away because it was just that classic, stereotypical, what we would consider a hippie van, right? It's yeah. got red, green, pastel colors just splashed all over the place. And all these eye-catching decorations had been made by some of his students from the School of Design at his request. So he wasn't a professor of the School of Design, but he thought those kids were cool. And he's like, yeah, y'all decorate my you know, van for me, which is pretty cool. That is cool. It kind of yeah. gives you an idea of the, the type of character this guy was. He was a California native and graduated from the University of California in Berkeley and the University of Leeds with a teaching stint in Cambridge before landing in Raleigh as the professor of psychiatry. And he would do these really cool lectures. I mean, sometimes I wish, like, man, I wish I could have had, like, a professor like this. It would have been such an amazingly sort of um, uh, entertaining, you know, course to take. So he would do these lectures on drugs and the psychedelic experience, Mm -hmm. you know, courses on hallucinogenic drugs. As you can imagine, though. Which, by the way, I just, I totally just imagine, like, Bill Murray yeah, or, right, right, right. From know, Ghostbusters. Yeah, I that mean, character. So he was kind of like a slendered guy, slipped back, dark hair, somewhat of an intense uh, expression. But yes, a very sort of playful Bill Murray type character. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, the administrators on campus weren't exactly super pleased with this wild. Because I mean, now we're in the late 60s. Yeah. Vietnam's starting to wind down. We're going to be going into the 70s. People are a little sick of the psychedelic type vibe, you know? Yeah. So one of the research interests that he had was, of course, astral projection. In his sort of determination, he determined that one out of a hundred people have had a credible out-of-body experience. Hmm. He And just like Bill Murray in Ghostbusters, heck, maybe that's who they based the character off of, he actively sought out test subjects so that he might you know, ascertain if those who experience these phenomenon could learn to control the destination of their minds. And this is an important feature here, and obviously why the government would be interested. And if others could be taught how to project their minds. Yeah. So it's one thing if you've got one person that can do it. It's an entirely other beast if you can scale that and teach others how to do it. Mm-hmm. And it just brings to mind that scene in Ghostbusters when he's like... Square. Good guess, but wrong. <laughs> Clear your head, all right? Tell me what you think it is. Is it a star? It is a star. <gasps> Very good. That's you know, talking to the pretty girl and then like the goofy looking dude. And the, and the goofy dude gets the... He guesses the card correctly, but he keeps on shocking him. Yeah, that's the best. Think hard. What is it? Circle. Close. Spot definitely wrong. Okay. All right. Ready? What is it? Figure eight. Incredible. That's five for five. You can't see these, can you? No, no. You're not cheating me, are you? No, I swear. They're just coming to me. (laughs) Callie, man. Which, by the way, that that test is actually a real Mm. test. They would do it. 
Um, she's like, when should we meet again? He's like, she's like, eight o'clock. He's like, I was just going to say eight o'clock. <laughs> so good. God, he is so good. Okay. One of the subjects that he tested claimed to project to another city and then described specific locations in just incredible detail. Mm-hmm. Dr. Bernard also claimed to have astrally projected himself. He actually told Fate magazine that astral projection is like lying on a sofa, getting up, and seeing your body still there. Now, for more modern and younger audience listeners, the best way to kind of think about it is in, well, I'd say portrayed similarly would be in the sort of like the Avengers movies. Yeah. When, you know, Doctor Strange is able to study all this stuff because his physical body is sleeping, but, you know he kind of astrally projects and then learns all of that, that information in the meantime, which is pretty cool. I wish I could do that. I mean, I would imagine most of our listeners are like into this stuff enough that they know kind of, you know, what we're talking about. What it looks about. like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he started to get attention and not just, you know, negative attention and not just local celebrity attention sort of within the university there. But within these scientific presentations, he began to get introduced to the government and government officials. And because of that, he was actually introduced to some military secrets. Yeah. Some top secret information, including the race to catch up with the Soviets, who apparently were close to creating an army of psychic spies mm-hmm. by harnessing this astral projection. Now, one of the things that Tyler asked me whenever I told him, hey, man, I want to do this, was... Oh, cool. You mean like Project Stargate? And we've kind of, you've mentioned it before, I know, but the answer is no. We're not going to talk about that in depth today because I think it deserves, yeah, take a drink. (laughs) We're going to do an episode on it Mm -hmm. later because it really does truthfully deserve its own. It's also this fascinating thing Mm -hmm. that is just, it's one of those things that if you didn't know anything about it, and then someone told you about it, you would say, no, 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 that's not, that's not real. Which this is kind of a primer to all that. Correct, yeah. So yeah. I felt like it would be great for us to kind of really dive into astral projection and stuff because it's a technique. It's one of the techniques that they used in Project Stargate to do, you know, what they did. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to it on another episode. So Bernard wasn't the only private sector researcher on the case outside of government labs. At UCLA, there were these lab experiments that began to replicate the Soviet photography believed to have captured evidence of astral bodies. And that's what they thought that they were capturing when they were talking about or, uh, auras. Is it auras or auras? I say auras. Yeah, but you also say shaman. Shaman. <laughs> yeah. it, it, like one of those, dude, not too long ago, you said it four different ways and all of them were wrong. Shaman, shaman, shaman. Okay. <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, I, I do know that people say like auric field. So okay, so aura. That's why I say aura. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, this guy named Edward Pullman, mm-hmm. director of the Southwest Hypnosis Research Center, research center in Dallas, Texas. Bill Pullman's grandfather. Bill Pullman. No, no, but I swear we've talked about Edward Pullman before. Hmm. I couldn't. I couldn't remember when, but anyways, he was the director of the Southwest Hypnosis Research Center in Dallas, Texas, and he started some research as well. This is an interesting quote, man. Listen to what Pullman said. He says, 
already, and this is in 1972, already the Soviets are at least 25 years ahead of us in psychic research. They, the Soviets, had realized the immense military advantage of the psychic ability known as astral, astral projection. Think about it this way, listener. If you had an army of spies yeah. that instead of putting themselves in physical danger, so to speak, they were able to sneak into top secret meetings at the Pentagon yeah. or into the White House, view any document in the world. I mean, everything. You, how do you stop that? Which, by the way, one of the things, and I don't, I'm not like derailing here, but one of the things that I think ties into like some stuff we've, we've been into in the past, you know, we talked about like the Akashic Record. So when you're making a movie. <laughs> a movie <Go> is. <laughs> um, no, we, we've talked about like, like the Akashic Record, which is kind of like this, yeah. you know, if you miss that episode, sort of this uh, like hard drive, if you will, of all future past present events. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every little detail, all captured within this one thing. Uh, uh, some people will refer to it as like the mind of God. Uh, and so some people are able to sort of tap into that. I, I have often wondered if part of the remote viewing thing is not necessarily physically tapping in or like physically traveling to these places, but if they're just sort of tapping into the Akashic record. Mm, kind you know of like I mean? a network. I mean, it truly is not to go back to, it's all a simulation, but, mm-hmm. you know, that makes sense. It's easier for my mind to utilize the <laughs> the life experience that I have with, you know, just using a computer during right. our lifetime right? and to kind of, you know, relate it to that. But that does make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just able to kind of ride that um, information yeah, and kind of tap in there. <laughs> That's interesting. And, in a way, we'll kind of get back to that s- sort of in, in a little bit. Okay. But so Pullman was basically saying, and this is a quote from him: "There is no defense against such intrusion, at least, and this is my favorite part, none that we know of." Yeah. So this is incredible. So Pullman started experimenting with this local woman named Beverly Chalker. He started hypnotizer. She was a 37-year-old interior decorator. And he would try to center on these astral, quote, flights to specific destinations. At one point, sending her from Dallas to a house in New Jersey, she reported observing a man asleep on a bed with the light on. With the book he was reading having fallen on the floor, she says, once you get to a place, you see what's going on just as though you were watching it on TV. She was able to describe the man's pajamas and the decor of the room. The next morning, Pullman's team startled themselves when they were able to verify Chalker's description with the man whom she had observed, which I wish to God I had more details about that. But this is just one of the things, man, that I latched onto because this concept is fascinating. Now, if this is where I had ended my reading or research, I would immediately be like, I'm doing this. How can I do this, right? Yeah. So if you're listening and you're super excited, please wait to the end of this episode to decide whether or not you could, should, or will practice this, okay? Yeah. Going back to Jean Bernard, the professor that was up at uh, 
North Carolina State. He said that man, general humanity, has the ability to perform this phenomenon at will. If he can be taught to project and to control, the prospects are staggering. Imagine the value that would be to our nation, he said, particularly in spy work where the unseen could be observed and later reported. Mm-hmm. Again, I go back to the boy, how, I mean, I, yes, that would be important, but also scary and hard for me to believe that it would be put to good use, I guess. Yeah. It would be just as easy for it to be used well, negatively, I guess, is the word I was looking for. Mm-hmm. I do think, by the way, I do think that it's interesting that we still have this stigma of like, oh, that's just silly pseudoscience. Yeah. Here's I, what I, I, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the word pseudoscience, man, because I didn't want to interrupt you when you brought it up earlier. Mm-hmm. So you interrupted me this time. J- this time. There yeah. you go. Uh, you know, I gave you one <laughs> and I figured take the other. Okay. okay. Here's the thing I actually love about the word pseudoscience. To me, the only thing that differentiates it, in my opinion, from quote unquote science is the word is pseudo. That well, of course, <laughs> but that usage there, uh, the way I look at it is, look, it's a science that has not, it's just like cryptozoology, right? right? It's science that hasn't been able to be replicated yet. That doesn't mean to me that it's just bull****. It just means yeah. to me that they haven't set up the experiments. And that's why this subject blew my mind because guess what, man? They did these experiments. They were able to replicate it. They were able to put this stuff into action and it's easy for people listening to think, well, maybe they didn't, maybe they, you know, maybe the dude, in my research, folks, not only do I have the declassified documents about this specifically, mm-hmm. but I read through them. The people that were part of these things, even Pro- Project Stargate, have since retired. They were, uh, you know, very well de- dedicated, uh, decorated army people. Yeah. And and well-respected. So it's not just complete BS. So yeah. whenever I hear pseudoscience, I think sometimes from people that are really sort of just closed-minded to this type of thing, they throw the word pseudoscience as an insult or like as a yes. jest. And, you know, on my side of things, I like to be, and I know you do too, open-minded. And so when I hear pseudoscience, I'm just like, okay, cool. You might not be able to duplicate it in the laboratory, but you know, not all things can be duplicated in the laboratory. But also, is it really still pseudoscience if we have records? Not, and th- this is the physical records of right. the military spending $240 million just between the mid-70s to the early 90s. Right. And that's what we know of. That's what we know, exactly. <laughs> and if we already know about this stuff, which, I mean, I, I hope we remind me, I won't forget. Never mind. I don't even want to bring it up because I don't want you to get into it. But I've got something else to say because I've got a new theory about declassification and, mm-hmm. uh, after reading all this stuff. In one laboratory-controlled experiment, he reported increasingly staggering results in the Detroit Free Press. A young girl was able to use astral projection to read a five-digit number hidden on a high shelf by scientists during sleep, reporting it upon waking. Yeah. Now... Longtime listeners of our show, thank you. Mm. But you will remember that when we, at some point, we talked about, God, this could have been a Patreon episode, I'm not sure, but we talked about Houdini. Yeah. And we talked about not only our love for the man, but the fact that he was really skeptical 
about um, people that did seances. Yep. And part of the reason for that the, was that he the always spiritualist said... spiritualist movement. Yeah, the spiritualist movement in general. He would say, look, if it works, then that person, like, have a password mm-hmm. that only that person knows. When they die... Uh, or or I, what is it now? I forget how it goes, but essentially, whoever's left on Earth would be able to. Well, uh, well, well. For him specifically, he was obsessed with. Uh, him and his mom were extremely close, and when she passed away, it was like a huge blow to him. And so, his whole thing was, you know, him and his mom had like an agreed, like a phrase. I can't remember if it was like a word or a phrase. And so that was his way of saying. Okay, whenever you go to the other side, you know, I need you to like contact me or like send somebody and they'll tell me that word and that'll be confirmation. And right. as, as far as I know, he went the rest of his life and it never happened. Never received that. Right, yeah. right. Which, by the way, like I said, it was such a traumatic, tragic event for him. I, I think, and you know, if you look into his history, which he was a fascinating dude, mm-hmm. he, you know, he would show up and we've talked about this before, he would show up at these seances and, and, you know, dressed in disguises and stuff. And, you know, then knock over the table, you know, and, and see people <laughs> like doing the table yeah. wrapping and stuff and like call them out. Like, yeah, which is kind of bad, but it also shows that he was a little jaded and like, sure. Like, well, he, it he hit got him on a personal mad. level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It, it, it was painful for him to see people sort of taking advantage of others. Yeah. When in his mind, it didn't work. I bet he kind of entered into it initially kind of thinking, oh, man, maybe I can, you know, communicate with my mom. Oh, he and definitely then, did, yeah. You know, and so, again, that's not to say that that isn't possible. Mm-hmm. It's just for him, it didn't work out. So I bring that up to say, you know, now we've got this young girl. It's a lab-controlled experiment mm-hmm. where she was able to read a five-digit number. And we're not going to do it, Clay... Is probably he already can do it the math in his head. He knows mm-hmm. the probability there. I'm not going to calculate the f- probability of five random numbers, but it's it's a high. It's a high. Uh, yeah, I mean it's a like a low probability of being able to achieve that, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't have the data in front of me. You know, full disclosure of how many attempts were made and all of that. But let's just say it was reported in the Detroit Free Press back when it happened. Now that tells you another thing. This information, these studies, these experiments, this interest began to generally leak out to the public. Yeah. Obviously unsurprising because, like I said just a few minutes ago, people wanted to try this practice for themselves. Mm-hmm. The government wanted to kind of like, you know, they needed kind of help from all sides of everything and didn't really have the luxury of time to really consider the potential collateral damage. So now I'm going to introduce a character named Robert Antosis, and his last name's hard to pronounce. It's got too many consonants. Robert Antosizic. Okay, Antosizic. I'm not recognized. I mean, McGonagall, I recognize that name, but... And we didn't talk about him on, on the podcast. We talked about him on our phone call earlier yeah. today, but yeah, yeah. Uh, which, uh, which, which, by the you, way... Yeah, but you recognized, I swear, you recognized Gene... Um, oh, um, the Bernard. Pullman. And Edward Pullman, man. Yeah. I think Edward Pullman we've talked about yeah, I don't I know how or why, but I think yeah. you're right. And the reason I, I know that is because I think I've made the same joke then. Right. Oh, it's Bill Pullman's. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, b- before you continue on, I, 
I, I also need to say, we'll return after these messages. Hey, this is Bryce Johnson from the Bigfoot Collectors Club, and you're listening to Tyler and Woody on That Would Be Rad, because that is rad. So this stuff didn't just start... Well, are you going to go back to kind of give sort of a history? or? Well, this is kind of where it all, for me, where it gets significant, and there's so much information that we're kind of starting in the mid-early you know, 60s, Okay. America's sort of uh, the U.S.'s acknowledgement that, oops, we're 25 years behind. Yes. And and then we're going to kind of go back into some of the ancient origins a little. Well, I, I think it is worth noting that in the, like, throughout the 30s and 40s, I think 30s and 40s, um, there was a guy named J.B. Ryan who he was doing stuff. And again, <laughs> this is what I get for, like, yeah, not. This is what happens when he's like. It's all, it's all kind of memory. But. I know that his name is J.B. Ryan, and I think it was Duke University. But throughout the 30s and 40s, he was already doing stuff on, like, ESP and telepathy. And and I think it's really cool. And the reason I remember all that is because I think this phrase is so cool. So back then, they referred to this stuff as as having super physical faculties. Mm. That's what, you know, this sort of psi stuff was was called. So, so X-Men sounding. It's super X-Men. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if you think about it in terms of like just the culmination of all of the things that we liked growing up as kids. I mean, you had Dreamscape, oh, yeah. which basically that's kind of what they were doing. They're diving into people's, you know, mm-hmm. consciousness into the dream world. You've got the X-Men, you know, all these things we've been sort of inundated with growing up. And in a way, I feel like there was a lot of creators, movies, TV, books, comics that were a little, you know, older than us. Yeah, coming through this time, they were able to use this as as their inspiration. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. it's kind of like Christopher Nolan definitely watched the movie. Uh, God, what is it called? Um, oh, man, it's basically like he totally ripped it off for um, Paprika. Oh, you know, I've never, I never finished that movie. I've never watched it, but I saw some scenes. It and looked, dude, it, he stole. Maybe not the concept necessarily, oh. but okay, you know the scene where she, she like touches about. the glass and it breaks in front of her. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. the scenes where it's like the city's collapsing in on itself. The the hotel scenes where he's like in the in the almost Victorian looking sort of elevator. Yeah. Uh, definitely not Victorian. Don't know architecture. Hey. Sort and of then, Art Deco. Uh, you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then the the like running on the wall, and then like I mean, just so much, dude. Yeah, I, I he think borrowed that, from it. I think that movie was was like one of the most beautiful animes ever but I, very strange yeah I, I didn't finish it There's i remember a part it was where just this guy like, like puts his hand into the person's body and it, uh, anyway okay let's get back on track here okay. so this guy robert and tasizik i'm just going to go with it probably yeah. say it a million different times you did Please great just bear with me mm-hmm. so this is a guy he's about 29 years old he's a vegetarian he had like a, he was like a beekeeper he was a Pisces. Um, you know, he liked uh, long walks on the beach. There it is. And 
a very sort of quiet and thoughtful d- demeanor, but he lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and he wasn't really like your typical sort of hippie necessarily, but he was kind of the type of person that wanted to just improve the the world around him, you know? Like mm-hmm. he wanted to leave the world and it having been, it, it, it being a better place because he was in it kind of thing, okay? That was yeah. his just overall demeanor. He was in the physics club, the rocket technology club as a student, known as a nice young man, no drugs, no drinking, just a really, you know, nice person. He hey, hey, yo- hey, Woody, talking about remote viewing, what's in my mind right now when you're saying all this? A Red Bull. Nope. Oh, when you're yeah. saying he was in this this club. Oh, oh, man, yes. Maxwell Fisher. What's his name again? Max Fisher. Sharp little guy. He's one of the worst students we've got. Right? Um, do, 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 do. Rushmore. Yep. See, so guys, yes. it, remote viewing is it works. so easy. It just happened. Did we just capture that on tape? We did, Val. Okay. We did. So he taught yoga at the uh, YMCA and the YWCA. Now, wait a minute now. Huh? Yeah. So why young thing? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I think it's just like a YMCA, but I guess the young or YWCA back in the in the mid seventies. I mean, I would Uh teach yoga. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would teach you. I'd be like, hey, I'm the yoga instructor. (laughs) But he also got into the more esoteric and spiritual side with associated with like, you know, historical yoga, Mm -hmm. and of course, been increasing his interest in astral projection. By the mid-1970s, information about astral projection had spread at a growing clip. I mean, you know, how-to books just hitting the shelves. Yeah, You go back and thumb through some of these cool magazines. Um, We've got several on our shelves here at uh, Midnight Radio Studios, but it's not uncommon to see in the ads sections of the how-to you know, pamphlets and stuff for astral journeys and all this kind of stuff, right? Just like this whole stack and new crop of literature, people coming out of the woodwork with cassette tapes and all that kind of stuff. Mm Kind of like what you heard at the top of the show. Yeah. Which, by the way, we haven't even mentioned it yet, but that is the actual declassified audio for what they call the Gateway Experience. And it was the CIA's course that they, that they gave to, you know, folks in the army and CIA agents. Yeah. You had people offering lectures in ballrooms at Holiday Inns on the technique. You had people just all around the U.S. kind of cashing in in a way mm-hmm. about this technique. Even Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were famed paranormalists, mm. had added the topic of astral projection to their lecture tour. Now we're talking. Listen to this, dude. At Seton High School, which was an all-girls prep school in Cincinnati, an entire class of students in early 1975 were led in an astral projection experiment, each Mm. one of them detailing what they saw before calling home to verify it. Isn't that wild? Yeah, dude, I think that's awesome. There was a report where a young woman reported that her fiancé learned to use astral projection to visit her in bed as she was on a multi-state work trip. Afterward, comparing notes and finding to their great shock, matching details such as the broken television in a second-floor hotel room. This Mm. other guy, this is kind of funny, actually, 
this guy, his name was Robert Monroe. And on his first out-of-body trip, he reported looking down at his wife in bed. Yeah. And he began to get furious because she was in bed with another man. Oh, boy. However, it just took a few minutes for his confusion and anger to kind of subside because oh. he realized that he was actually looking down on his very own body. Man, that's cool. Of course, just like we talked about with Houdini, many people who had lost someone began to develop a, a curiosity about that astral travel, thinking that maybe they had the potential technique to enter into the realm where maybe their loved ones were. This lady named Laverne Landis, she was in her early 40s. She was a, a nurse in Houston, Texas. And her husband, Dennis, who was a medical researcher, had died suddenly, leaving her alone with five children. Laverne, she was like at first interested, but then became even obsessed with the idea of astral uh, travel. And the fact that maybe, just maybe, somebody's soul could enter a sphere to find and reunite with spirits of the dead. Yeah. Or what we thought of, or what we think of as the afterlife. And so she began to throw herself into this new breed of books and classes. Very, very like new agey, by the way. Yeah, very new agey. But again, because it's rooted in, hey, our government is kind of, you know, of course, at this time, they're just getting sort of like small leaks, right, to mm -hmm. the press. Like, oh, right. that we know of potentially the government's looking into this. Yeah. You know, and then in the public sphere, you know, universities and stuff doing experiments and, 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 and all that. And then all these books coming out. So this guy, going back to Robert Antosic, 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 yeah, there we go. Robert Antosic. <laughs> um, he wasn't really content with just leafing through pamphlets and, you know, um, not Penny Arcade, but like, uh, what, what do they call those? Um, uh, you know, um, those, um, I know what you're talking about. Kind of like the, yeah, cheap, you know, he like the books you get at the checkout counter, like yeah. Fate Magazine and stuff. Yeah, like, re like your Reader's Digest. Yeah, it was a little digest size, right? Book. He just felt like he like he wasn't just good with. Hey, I'm just scratching the surface on this. This guy was getting serious with it, so he flew to India to mm -hmm. seek out a master teacher of yoga, mm -hmm. and essentially taking himself to the ancient fountain of knowledge for out of body projection. Wow. But really, is it too much in the weeds, man? Just give me some just of these. Give me doing this. Wow. Wow. Oh, man, dude. So put that right I've, I've got to send you. I've got to send you this video that I found of this dude who does. Oh, hold on, hold on. I'm going to do it right now. I think I know what you're talking about. I just watched one the other day. He does he's like, like a, the West He's like Anderson. a singer. I mean, the. Uh, he's what? He's like a singer. Oh, no. I don't. Dude, this guy Maybe. is hilarious. Hold on. I haven't done this in a while, but here's Owen Wilson. As Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh, I ha this is it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm a professional. Okay, wait. Yeah, I knew your dad. I fought next to him in the phone <laughs> wars. And a pretty good pilot. Kind of like somebody I know. This what? Surprise. It's you. <laughs> force is kind of... All right, so it kind of like binds a galaxy together. You know what I mean? I don't really know what I mean, but it's present and it's there. And that's exciting. 
what's going on, Darth? You got a goofy mask. You sound weird. Mm. Hey, Luke, I don't mean to interrupt, but just reach out with the force. <laughs> I haven't done this in a while. <laughs> oh, that's so good, dude. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I watched. He's, do you remember that time you were like, and I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't even know that that was a thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay, at this point, let's fast forward to the American intelligence community is ready. They're ready for some real-life trials. CIA, by mm-hmm. one account, invested over $25 million in the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI. SRI, yeah. Which well, recruited... Which, by the way, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but there was actually a book that that came out before that that was actually written about sort of psi phenomenon and like this research in Russia or, or the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And that's what... Uh, Kicked it off? Yeah, that book came out like a few years before SRI was funded by Man. the military or CIA. So or basically SRI, and thank you for that input... Basically, the SRI started to recruit a set of, quote, specialists who practiced this and almost thought of them as like kind of test pilots, including one who was actually legally blind. The CIA brought in a guy named Pat Price. Yep, know him. He was a 54-year-old former former police commissioner who was said by a fellow experimenter, having trouble talking today, man. Yeah, a little bit. He was, it was said by a fellow experimenter to be one of our most gifted practitioners. Yeah. Some of these declassified national security agency documents that, that I've got, and even some other researchers, they basically refer to Price's role in something that they call the astral projection caper. Hmm. Now, to kind of give the listener, uh, I'm looking at a picture of Pat Price right now. He kind of like makes everybody's dad and grandfather into one and then like make him about, you know, what I say, uh, 54, right? Mm-hmm. In the 70s, he just looks like a sweet old man, you know, got some rumpled clothes, headed out to go maybe fishing with his son or something, you know? Yeah. And here he is. And this is some cool synchronicity. July 15th, 1973. It's my daughter's birthday, but in 1973, Mm. officials asked him to project himself into a secret underground installation at a United States military facility far from their location. Mm. If the test worked, they could work up to sending Price across astral enemy lines. Among other observations while projecting himself as directed, Price described file cabinets desks, yeah. detailed papers and documents identifying the location of either Haystack or what he called Hay Fork. The Stanford team also sent, and here's your guy, and very famous, more famous, I would say, Ingo Swan. Oh, he was he was known as the world's greatest psychic. Through the astral planes to the same facility with an assignment to draw maps upon his return. Mm-hmm. I mean, if this doesn't just remind you of Stranger Things, man, I mean... It's just incredible. Yeah. So this guy named Commander George Long of the National Intelligence Strategy traveled the old-fashioned way to the underground installation for the express purpose of checking Price's claims and Swan's maps. He was welcomed when he got there by a guide who said, Hey, welcome. This is our haystack facility. I'm sure that sent chills down his spine. Mm -hmm. This couldn't come 
at a better time because according to rumors at that exact time, the Russians were said to be examining whether projected souls could be endowed with any physical strength. In other words, whether or not they could become assassins. Yeah. Here's what's neat. At that exact time when these rumors were swirling, there was an influx of extra security added to the White House. So whether or not you believe in this stuff or not, whether or not it's even real, it was groundbreaking and sort of terrifying enough that they're like, we need extra people here. Yeah. Right? That's how real it was to the government. But it's just pseudoscience, though, so. Well, I mean, (laughs) dude. Now, let's travel back for just a second. I know I'm kind of going all over the place. It's going to kind of come together. Back in North Carolina, the more sort of free-thinking Professor Gene Bernard began to learn something about astral projection that we haven't really touched on that much yet. The benefits of astral projection began to be countered by signs of danger. Some experimenters he studied reported being afraid and worried, as though something menacing was creeping into the astral sphere. Mm. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I can't even contain it. This is the moment when I discovered that, that I was like, now it's a that would be rad <laughs> yeah. episode. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I don't know anything about this. So, oh man, it's so crazy. So this lady, Christine Brister in Berkeley, went on a meditation-induced astral projection. And then, terrifyingly, she said that she struggled to get back to her body. The reason we even know about her in general is because she went public pleading with people to realize how dangerous astral projection could be. Another projector thought he was dead and he could see his own corpse. So imagine that terror. Yeah. As Professor Bernard continued to compile accounts, these red flags essentially multiplied. One projector profiled in the Messenger of Kentucky reported, which is a, you know, a newspaper in Kentucky, reported enjoying leisurely astral jaunts to Florida, at least at first. Complications began to creep in, and then those were increased. When he started making these spiritual trips, his body temperature would shoot up into a high fever. Wow. Soon, whenever he was having an out-of-body experience, his children elsewhere in the house would wake up screaming in horror without knowing why. Hmm. A San Antonio woman, she was having unexpected out-of-body experiences since she was a child, now woke up in her bed but couldn't move even as she saw a version of herself walking around the room. She said that the me in the bed was terrified because I couldn't seem to get back into myself and was trying so hard to move my body yeah. and couldn't. I've, I've heard that too. This reminds me of sleep paralysis. Yeah, right. Right? I think it's all connected. Oh, man. The more, I, the more we dig into this, the more I agree with you, man. Which, before you go, and the reason I want to say this now is I wonder if you'll touch on this. I wonder if that weird phenomena that I have with my youngest daughter... Mm, is tied that's what I thought of. I know, man. Where that's like, what I thought of. For you folks that haven't listened, I'll do this thing where if she has like a bad dream or a nightmare and and it'll, you know, it's enough to like wake her up so she comes into our room at night 
every single time I'll wake up like 30, 40 seconds before she comes into our room. Yeah. Even if, it's, and I, and well, all, every time, like I don't recall anything that I've been dreaming or, or any of that. It's weird. Yeah. And, and it makes you just a kind of, rethink of that silver cord Mm -hmm. this is just something that when you said that i i thought of so it's not in this um research that i did but it just kind of popped in my head if i wonder if potentially think of it as a family tree but we're all like all of those tethers are somewhat tethered to each other does that make sense Mm, yeah you know so if there's some like um we'll call it turbulence on somebody else's cord now we're getting real New agey here, but yeah. I mean, hey, break out the crystals. Anyway, maybe they're connected in some way, and, and we can sense that. I'm not sure. It's a cool It's a cool thought. So Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, and again, I'm not driving away from the dot. But, I, you know, there is that, that like, hereditary element to a lot mm-hmm. of this weird fringe kind of phenomenon. I mean, a lot of times, like, if, and I'm, boy, it's weird that I'm, like, in a different place than than even I was at the beginning of the show in my belief system. Mm-hmm. But yeah. there is stuff with like lineages and, you know, a lot of times like if some if if there's like an abductee, like if somebody experiences like, you know, they're like abducted by aliens, if you will, a lot of times that will like carry on to like their children. Mm-hmm. And so whatever that is, I'm not saying it is or isn't real aliens or what, I wonder if that is tied to this like the silver thread thing being, you know, sort of connecting us all. Yeah. I mean, maybe. I also thought, you know, there's that sort of hereditary sensitivity to certain onions as well. You know, (laughs) onions, geez. (laughs) No, I mean, like, you know, you hear about, I mean, we joke with one of our neighbor friends that she has The Shining Mm. because she can kind of sense when things have happened specifically like if someone you know has passed away uh, that she knows there's family members that I have that are very sensitive to that kind of thing yeah you know maybe that is also it's all the same you know it's all connected all right let's get back to this guy though you've got Dr. Bernard's kind of getting um red flag after red flag yeah and he in his perspective for some reason souls or so it seemed, were now being sort of jammed or disrupted. He really kind of needed to s- stop and consider the consequences of this astral craze, which he had sort of contributed to. Mm-hmm. So from where he was sitting in, in academia, he was well-positioned basically to find a way to share those warnings before it was too late. But at the time, again, think of Bill Murray and Ghostbusters, tensions yeah. with the university administration had kind of peaked. And... You know, his psychedelic bus, they made him uh, paint it to a, a neutral color. He was having a lot of sort of administrative pressures. And basically, he just felt like he was no longer, he, no, he was no longer welcome there. And so he resigned from the university and headed west back to where he went to the school, you know, uh, in his VW. Yeah. So that he could sort of help people and warn them. Which, by the way, one of the things that does suck about this stuff is like any of the the folks that, I mean, I'm sure other other folks too, but like anybody that was, you know, previously in the military or, you know, that were put into these programs, their careers were pretty much ruined after after they were like a part of this 
sort of phenomenon. That, you know, it's, it goes back to Woody's, like, sort of the pseudoscience thing where people, they're like, oh, this is a joke, even though, you know, we spent $240 million on it. Well, the good news is, in some of these cases, Project Stargate, when we talk about that, mm-hmm. a lot of those people that headed up that project were able to kind of leave it unscathed, which that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother beast, which is yeah. really cool. And it tells you just how, quote unquote, real this is, you know? Well, and this is, this is kind of sort of on the subject. One of the things that I think is cool, and I don't know if you'll ever cover this, but one of my favorite aspects of this is in a previously like unreleased document from like the Soviet era, you know, this would have been maybe maybe late 50s, I guess, technically, because they, you know, they got a much bigger start than we did on this. Um, and and by the way, I also think this is cool. They call it, uh, they used to call it, and I think it was Hal Putoff that um, he was sort of the director of the SRI program, but he he called it like the race for inner space, mm, which, I like that. you know, uh, it would have been in 72 or one, I think, SRI, and then, you know, 69, we went to the moon, so it was like the next big race of like, oh, we got to do this. But mm. anyway, one of the cool things about the Soviets is they were so serious about this that they actually sank a submarine like down like it, almost as, I guess, as far as you could kind of go in a sub. And they had a remote viewer do stuff in which the results were it made no difference whatsoever in if, you know, if they were across the street or if they were across the world, man, which is pretty cool. And, and that, that alone kind of, to me, lends credibility to this. Maybe there is, maybe it's more of like tapping into this Akashic record mm. kind of thing. Man, you it's know. just. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, this is Woody. And this is Tyler. And you're listening to That Would Be Rad. And now, back to our show. It's hard because I know there's a lot of eye rolling Mm -hmm. that is potentially going on out there when we talk about this kind of stuff. And I get it, but it's, I, I don't know. Okay. Let's remember the beekeeper from Ann Arbor, Robert yep. Antosizic. Mm. Dang it. Antosizic. Antosizic. There we go. Robert Antosizic, okay? Beekeeper, vegetarian, peaceful dude. Mm-hmm. He had been cautioned to be careful about this power in India, studying with this master yogi. By the way, the same class of spiritual leaders who had been analyzed and studied by the KGB. Mm-hmm. However an even more powerful force began to beckon him. Now, this is when it gets even more rad, folks. Buckle up. Yeah. He started having dreams about a woman, an exotic, 
beautiful woman with a captivating voice calling to him from across the cosmos. Now, for a single dude in his 20s, the idea, the promise of this transcendent love interest mm-hmm. must have just been like, ooh, I mean, pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, obsessive, right? Yeah. So, with his ongoing training in projecting his soul out of his body, he was in his mind ready to go as deep into the astral sphere to find her as necessary. Hmm. On June 1st, 1975, he told his roommate, a guy named Neil, that he didn't want him to disturb him at all. He needed unbroken concentration so that he could enter the astral planes and find this mysterious woman with whom he wanted to make contact. He went inside his bedroom and he locked the door. In his room, Antazizik stretched out on his back. He formed his hands into soft fists and meditated in order to loosen the bonds that usually hold the soul and body tightly together. So cool. Experimenters in astral projection describe a sensation at once tranquil and disquieting of separating from the body with a deafening sound, a roar of wind in their ears. The first sights, they report, are often of their own body left behind, unmoving, as they float into the astral plane, tethered as though with an umbilical cord, like we've talked about, or an astronaut's lifeline to their physical form. Yeah. We called that the silver cord earlier. Mm-hmm. And the Soviet researchers believed that they had been able to capture this cord on film. That's what they consider essentially the, the aura that individuals have. Projectors also describe some feelings of confusion, sometimes even nausea, before gaining control of their movements once they are sort of, quote-unquote, out of their physical form. The astral body, they say, is far lighter, but still kind of, you know, holding mass. Mm -hmm. Once they are able to master the movements, they can transport themselves through space, some said with expertise, and even through time to go anywhere they desired. That's my favorite part. For sure. I mean, the idea of that is just, it's very attractive. Well, and the cool thing about it is the way they would discover this was, you know, you'd have these remote viewers who were just nailing it, nailing it, nailing it, getting like down to price was so good that he was giving like names of people in offices Mm -hmm. Uh, words on the filing cabinets and he was and so then he would have some that like wouldn't make any sense and it's like well this is weird like there's no like water tanks or there's no Mm -hmm. there's not this or there's not this then they would find out like oh that was that was actually there like 50 years ago yeah and it's like he's not only you know sort of sending his astral body to a place he's like going also going back in time and or forward in time yeah And maybe even he's in all time. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. Now, for Antosizik, his journey to find the irresistible female spirit had just begun. When I was reading this, my thoughts, and it's like, was this another experimenter who was kind of beckoning? Then maybe they crossed paths at some point. Was it someone from, you know, a past life or someone not of this world? Yeah. His roommate, Neil, started to worry. He was initially nervous, 
And then it led to panic because it had been three days since his roommate had locked himself in his bedroom with, again, strict instructions not to be disturbed, but there hadn't been a peep out of the room since. Hmm. Now, before we go into this next bit, I was curious, even in terms of meditation, how long has it been documented that someone could be in a meditative state, like a monk, we'll say, without needing food and water. What I could find quickly this morning, whenever I just sort of thought of it, it popped in my head while I was on my morning walk with my headlamp. (laughs) I just found something quickly, and it was something like somebody, a monk reported 70 days or something like that, which is kind of crazy. So anyway, it's been three days, not a peep out of this room. Neil is very nervous. He's like, what the heck, man? You know, I don't want to go in there. I don't want to make him angry, but I mean... Jeez, I mean, just think about how that would make you feel. Yeah, yep. Finally, Neil busted the door down, only to find that Antazizik was dead. Ooh. He laid on his back, his thumbs between his index and middle fingers. He looked frozen, as if the warmth of his soul had been torn from his body, and he was now a cold shell. But he was smiling. Mm-hmm. Police swarmed the house. They were baffled. Pathologists at the nearby University of Michigan Hospital were also stumped. And Tazizik, this vegetarian, had been in peak health. He treated his body like a temple. His circulatory and respiratory systems, heart, liver, all of it. Perfect. Dr. Ronald Riker told the Detroit Free Press that there was no good anatomic cause of death. He said, quote, we simply could not find a reason why he died. Wow. In general, experts are beginning to get desperate. You know, kind of digging into research on mystics. This guy named Paul Gaikas consulted Indian scientists whom they reported so said that, you know, this form of meditation can be very dangerous if the person does not know what he or she is doing. Gaikas and others theorized that Robert had died while in deep self-induced trance that slowed his heart to a point where his brain received too little blood. Whoa. A local astrologer friend of his, though, thought about it a bit differently. She said that there's really no ex- explanation except that he decided not to return to his body. Hmm. So this term that they kind of coined here is it's called psychic suicide. And it seems kind of far-fetched because this is a guy who had a real zest for life. He you know, although interested in finding this uh, astral woman, I'm just not sure if I can kind of wrap my head around him just not wanting to return. But if he'd been prevented from returning, that might be the scariest thing I've ever thought about. I mean, it kind of does put you in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street territory. Exactly. I mean, full circle, right? Yeah. So for the first time in history, at least in the United States, newspapers carried headlines announcing that astral projection potentially had taken a human life. All these astral cassette tapes from Beverly Hills-based researchers released shortly before this guy's death trumpeted, you know, life-changing experiences for $11, mm-hmm. uh, you know, promising to work for people who have tried and failed to use other astral projection methods. This lady reported that she used these tapes and ordered them through the mail. She was hoping to see some cool colors, designs, pictures, hallucinations. 
And when she listened to the tape, she was transported. But what she saw was monsters and ugly things, she said. What? She was terrified. Even dedicated paranormalists seem to be pulling back. So there's this book called The Astral Journey. And the author is a guy named Herbert Greenhouse. Hmm. And he interviewed a bunch of experimenters and delved into the practice's history. He detailed the process of separating from one's body. And he said that the astral body generally feels light, weightless, yada, yada, yada. But sometimes that's that separation, right? When you, when you can, quote unquote, physically feel being separated from your body, that it would, people reported it creating initially fear. But then it becomes more of like a thrill to that experimenter. And soon the experimenter is usually potentially reluctant to go back to his physical body. We talked about this when we talked about waking up, you were in this dream world, you wake up, you're kind of depressed because the dream world was just like this fantastic thing and you're back in the real world and you're like, oh, or carrying those emotions back to the real world. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That stuff is so scary to me, man. Yeah, me too, dude. And it, it kind of reminds me of Inception in a way. You're, you know, like people will just get stuck in that dream world, not wanting to uh, to ever come back. You can think about it in terms of, I think, what is that movie? It's like, it's not replacements or anything like that. Flatliners? No, no. Which that's kind of this. That is a great movie. No, I'm talking about, it, it's nothing to do with this. It's more like there are these, um, it's got Bruce Willis and, you know, it, it's a near future movie where people, um, replicants or something like that, people are oh, able to yeah. pass their consciousness into like a, a uh, like a sleeve. like a cyborg or something. Are you talking uh, about all, uh, what is it called? Altered carbon? No. Did they I mean, yeah. something like it's something like that? Where no, that's a show, I think. But that, I think that kind of plays on that too. Yeah. Where people just get used, you get used to being able to live differently than your reality, and then that becomes addictive and, yeah. and all that. So mm-hmm. it says the cord that connects the astral to the physical body was mysterious and tenuous. He says that fear excessive noise, or some other disturbance can cause the double to slam back into the physical body with an unpleasant shock effect, and thus it's better to return slowly. He said that he found that some journeys even took a very wrong turn. In those cases, experimenters' astral forms could end up feeling stuck in an unearthly, this is a quote here, in an unearthly misty atmosphere with unpleasant and frequently threatening entities. He called it the Hades environment. Wow. I mean, so now you're getting think, into... Dude, this is what I'm saying. We started this conversation off thinking, well, you know, the governments are trying to spy on each other and that's mm-hmm. the origin of all this. But now we're talking about monsters. Yeah. And this I'm, kind of... The, it it kind of reminds me of... And I, I've yet to... This is kind of a, a super deep kind of thing but and it's really difficult to to find anything on it but there's this sort of urban legend that kind of came out years ago where this guy said that his dad was in Vietnam and he was in charge of this unit that were testing out these like infrared goggles have you heard about this mm. doesn't ring a bell well these specific infrared goggles were like doing something about like utilizing like this red frequency band in in like what it would allow you to see. And so like they were like a, I guess, uh, in their helicopters or whatever, and they would claim that like 
every single person within the unit or like platoon or whatever the group was, they were tr they would try these got these you know infrared goggles on and they were seeing these like these flying like monster demons all around the helicopter mm. uh, and they would you know they would even try to like shoot at them in the air this was like you know off in Vietnam and every single one of every single one that tried it it just absolutely like made them flip out and so I guess shortly after they like recalled them and then they try you know they swapped out that frequency band so it reminds me of that of like like you know does your does your astral body does it have to like you know apparently you're able you know you're able to fly you're able to sort of walk through walls you're able to sort mm -hmm. of teleport so maybe those limitations on our bodies like only being able to you know that's a big callback but like being able to only see this small band of of frequencies in our vision mm -hmm. maybe that doesn't apply to that that right. body you know yeah yeah and you know kind of like we talked about with you know freddy krueger and stuff but apparently like when you are projecting anything that happens to you in terms of physical mm -hmm. uh, pain or or injury doesn't apply to your physical self but what's interesting is besides uh robert and Tassizik, he may not have been the first to kind of succumb another researcher an engineer who went by the pseudonym Steve Richards identified a New Jersey man in the early 70s who died after he combined astral projection with some extremely dangerous experiments in suspended animation. Kind of makes me think of the cell or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Researchers reported growing indications that something was amiss in astral planes, leaving some projectors almost like zombies if the soul somehow got lost along the way. Wow. I mean, it does make you wonder if if it truly is like, is something, you know, snapping that that silver thread or that silver mm. cord, like, is that being like cut? Yeah. You know? Well, that or this other theory, which is kind of like maybe in this sort of astral race between the American and Soviet governments, they kind of unintentionally triggered this flood of experimenters from all walks of life mm -hmm. and kind of created some sort of, uh, I think I read it described as like a log jam of souls on the astral sort of quote unquote super highway. Wow. And so all these people are trying it. They're, they're tapping into this, as we'll see in just a minute, ancient practice that they don't really know the, all of the implications and all of the responsibility that need to be kind of considered before doing so. And so all these sort of amateurs, it's sort of like if you just gave every kid on the block a set of car keys and right. said, there you go. Well, they've ridden in a car before. You know, the parallel to that would be we've all dreamed before. Yeah. So they, they're like, oh, well, I think I know how to do that. And you can kind of give them the basics. You know, you push this pedal to go forward. You push this pedal to stop. Some people can probably get it down. Some people would probably make it back home. A lot of them would crash and F stuff up, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. And so a bunch of people started to come out and say like, oh man, this is, I don't know, I've had other people I've heard have had a similar situation and stuff. And so this social worker in Hawaii who had been teaching workshops and stuff described multiple zones 
in astral travel. Mm. Uh, and so I'm just going to, A is basically your earthly existence. And I'm not sure where the letters kind of fall into everything, but D being the equivalent of like sort of Ooh. deep space. And then zone C was kind of like a, um, a limbo between barriers where trapped souls could never go back or forward. To parapsychologists and true believer scientists, their deepest fears are basically being realized here. Again, there's this 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 sort of logjam of travelers being sort of tossed around and misdirected and thrust into what that greenhouse author identified as this Hades environment, where these pathways in the astral planes were being accessed. And we're talking about reaches of existence where potentially these evil entities had lurked. I mean, when I think about it too, it's like maybe it's an evil entity. Maybe it's someone that was trapped thousands of years ago. Wow. You know? Man, that's crazy. And here's dude, man, and I know I keep saying this, but it's just like one thing after another where I'm like, yes, this is incredible. It just keeps getting more incredible to me. So when Antosazic's story kind of came out, about him hearing a woman beckoning to him. It started to be sort of, well, more people were like, well, that's not unique. Similar voices were allegedly being heard by others. Astral researchers kind of steeped in this practice's long backstory recognized the telltale signs of a particular figure. Oh, man. The ancient female demoness was known to the Egyptians as Amut, or the destroyer of souls. Wow. Who existed in the astral planes, specifically the Hall of Two Truths, which, according to ancient texts, corresponds to that middle ground of Zone C's limbo, or the Hades environment. Wow, that's crazy. So, mm. Amut would consume the souls that she came upon to absorb their power, she was a shapeshifter. She was she could appear as like a beautiful goddess with a seductive siren call. But her true form, which anybody that has watched Moon Knight would kind of remember, they kind of changed her lore a little bit in that show, but her true form is sort of like a combination of a the head of a reptile or think of it as like almost like an alligator head on the body of a lion and hippopotamus. Mm. All three ancient symbols of pure animal ferocity. Yeah. So now we've got a situation here, folks, where there's straight up imminent danger, you know, that these experts are seeing. Almost like two things happening here. First, people could die. Second, in this sort of interchange between the physical world and the astral world, something from the darkness here the amulet, monsters, whatever, could potentially escape into reality. Is this a situation where we're tapping into something, we're opening a, a door, a portal, a window that we don't know how to close? Yeah. Around the same time, and this is why I think, like, something's amiss here, because authorities who had been so focused on sort of countering this Soviet uh, progress pivoted and they did so quickly and we're almost like needing to figure out a containment scenario mm. even the soviet researchers apparently seem to be rattled reportedly they transmitted this ambiguous warning to their enemies it says 
tell America that the psychic potential of man must be used for good. And this was a quote by Professor Inushin of Kaza State University that we talked about, the guy who did the photographic research early on. Mm-hmm. The way we know about the fact that the Soviets were kind of pivoting was there's this L.A. Times reporter, Robert Toth, who was actually stationed in Moscow. He was passed a top-secret parapsychology paper by a Soviet scientist, which then led to this inter- it led to an international incident because he was detained by the KGB because of that. So he passes along this word that's like, look, man, the Soviets are spooked by this. Something's going on. Simultaneously, we've got this kid who passed away in his house going after this female voice that he heard. Is it this ancient Egyptian goddess or demoness, I should say? Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, what did you say this guy's name was? Antazizik. No, like the Toth guy. Yeah, Robert Toth. So that's interesting because Thoth was the god of the moon in Egyptian mythology. Whoa. And like the messenger god. What? Yeah. No way, dude. I, I swear. They're all watching us now, man. They sure are, pal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God of the moon, mathematics, sacred text, the magic messenger and recorder of the deities. Master of knowledge. Weird. Synchronicity, yeah. but also just weird. Yeah. I mean, you just said moon night. And- yeah, no, I know. The U.S. government at this point is like continuing to monitor astral experiments and all this such as Dr. Uh, Bernard and Edward Pullman, but they started to run into obstacles here. Bernard had lost his position at his lab and his lab. Now, this is, again, it gets weird, man. The government's top astral projector, Pat Price, the guy that I talked about earlier, who, along with Ingo Swan, And another guy named Peter Targ. Did I say his name right? What? Ingo. Yeah, Ingo Swan, yeah. Okay, Ringo uh, Starr. (laughs) Pat Price died mysteriously after going in and out of a state of sleep six weeks after Robert and Tazizik died. Whoa, what? Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Cause, because he was, even though Ingo Swan was like, you know, like, like oh, we, we talked about him when um, he was friends with John Lennon, who supposedly gave him that egg. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, he was like a bit, you know, you would see him on all the late shows. He would bend spoons and... Yeah, you're talking about Ingo Swan. Ingo Swan, yeah. Yeah. But it, in actuality, in the SRI program, Pat Price was actually known to be like the the better yeah, he was of, the best of all yep. of them, yeah. Months after both the both Antazizik and Price's deaths, the Defense Department through the Advanced Research Projects Agency or DARPA, yep, still going. Launched a $145,000 top secret project aimed at new methods of controlling astral projection. Hmm. They also turned their interest to another leader in the field, you'll recognize his name, Robert Monroe. Yep. The Monroe Institute. Also, real quick before you continue on, guess who the uh, the original director for DARPA was? Uh, I don't know. Elon Musk's grandpa. Oh man! Yeah, it gets it. Just they're all connected. I know. Here's what's funny about Robert Monroe. He was the guy, the businessman mm-hmm. who experienced seeing his wife in bed with what he thought was another man. Turned out to be him. After that occurred, he became extremely fascinated and obsessed with astral projection, which then led to all the stuff that we're going to talk about, uh, you know, uh, I guess with, because wasn't Monroe? I think the Monroe Institute came out of all this. Mm. Okay. So it's neat that he 
practice that, saw who he thought was some other dude with his wife. It was him. And he's like, man, I got to look into this. Became obsessed, opened this sprawling institute in Faber, Virginia, kind of tucked in there in the Blue Ridge Mountains, beautiful area. And yeah, founded the the Monroe Institute or whatever. Yeah. And detailed hundreds of, of accounts of astral journeys, just even of his own. This one account, though, kind of struck me, and so I wrote it down. He recorded, or he described in one instance where he reached behind his head. Now tell me, uh, Tyler, if this reminds you of anything, but listener, you're going to, I think you're going to see the same thing that I saw when I, when I read this. He describes reaching behind his head and he felt something extending from his back between his shoulder blades. Mm -hmm. He said, it felt exactly like the spread out roots of a tree radiating from the basic trunk. It was the silver cord. Yeah. He said that broken, accidentally or not, it could cause death. Now, what does that remind you of? I mean, kind of like the Matrix. The Matrix. Yeah. There it is, man. Yeah. Oh, this stuff is just getting wild. Okay. So again, Monroe goes all in. He starts working with the U.S. Army Intelligence and Security Command, or INSCOM, according to the declassified CIA document that will be on our Patreon after we release this episode. They wanted to test what was called, or what he called Monroe. In fact, this is where the tie-in is for Stargate, Project Stargate. Yeah. They wanted to test out his process that he called the hemi-sync process. Which, by the way, my buddy Jesse, uh, our pal Jesse Phillips, he is the one who told me about this. And you can actually, you can still find this stuff online. It's mm. It mm-hmm. has to do with like sound, like different. Yeah, binaural. Binaural stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's basically the definition of the, the hemi-sync process is essentially when you are literally synchronizing both hemispheres of your brain. Mm. And there is a, a way that they describe where you're using a, a, a binaural, this is a very simplified explanation, and it's probably about 70% accurate, so just bear with me here. We'll talk about this in greater detail when we talk about uh, Project Stargate, but yeah. the, ba- the gist is this. You hear one sound at a certain frequency in one ear. Then you hear another sound in the other ear, in the opposite ear, of a different frequency. And then in between, essentially, there is a rhythm or beat that happens because of those opposing frequencies that sort of, quote-unquote, clicks and syncs those hemispheres, Hmm. and it's wild stuff. So that is what the practice of being able to do that is what then enables you to do things like remote viewing and that kind of thing. Dude, one of the things that this just reminded me of, and it may have nothing to do with this, but it is kind of fascinating. So a lot of the astral travel stuff can be related to, you know, like what he said, like yogis and like uh, the belief like you're activating like certain chakras, but then also like the Tibetan monks. Well, the cool thing is about them is they've been known to create, which as far as I know, no one else can like do this. You know, it's it's something that's very specific with like your master monks, but they're able to create like polytones with their voice. So they're able to mm. like physically create two tones, two like different keys yeah. with their like their vocal cords. So I wonder if, you know, it's like that, like, oh, it's like that yeah. chanting like kind of thing. I wonder if that's what's activating. It's doing the same thing as, mm-hmm. yep. Yep. as this. Because what, what I read just briefly on the, the hemi-sync 
there is like a uh, a tone that you have to admit to. Um, I forget mm. what they call it, like tune. In, yeah, uh, it, you know, again, it sounds more sort of new agey when you start diving into the science behind those hemispheres and those waves and sound and all that, it, it it's fascinating to say the least. Mm. Anyway, because of this, they wanted to test the ability. They were feel like they felt like they were getting closer to being able to uh, sending astral travelers with purpose and mission, you know, and rather than them just like sort of entering into this plane and just sort of like observing it, at this point, they're really, really focusing in on, you know, having a purpose, having a mission, mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of thing. They had sort of a, a what would you call it? like a, I don't know, a group of reliable travelers. Even though you know Pat Price had had died at this point, they had his quote unquote co-pilot uh, Ingo Swan mm-hmm. and Robert Monroe. And was uh, Peter Targ still part of this? They didn't mention him because again. I didn't really dive into the the Project Stargate stuff. Well, and and I know that a lot of these, even on these like unreleased documents, a lot of these, like the names are still, um, they're just like, they're just like Mm -hmm. code, like numbers. Yeah. So. And uh, an interesting point is that they kind of gathered these folks because to them, they felt like these folks had enough skill, enough practice, Mm -hmm. enough experience to kind of be able to go in, make observations, elude any threatening entities and return safely to then, you know, make a report. Mm-hmm. An interesting thing here, the papyrus scrolls that detail a supposed encounter with Amut were housed in a British museum. Mm. Egyptologists were sometimes activated on site by the CIA and MI5 to comb through the hieroglyphics. Wow. It's starting to make me feel like, is there something in the astral sphere yeah. that's trying to come through from the other side? After these messages, we'll be right back. America's future can be determined by our dreams and our visions. It was very intense For over 200 years, there have been reports of giant man-like creatures from... Another dimension, another world, I don't know. The most intriguing mystery on the North American continent. This is Joshua Cutchen, and you're at my home for weirdness. That would be rad. I mean, <laughs> that's really cool. You remember that nurse, Laverne Landis from, te- from Texas, right? Mm-hmm. She was the mother of five. Her husband died suddenly. She drove out into the Minnesota wilderness, and it was like wintertime. Snow everywhere, snow was piled around. She'd been hearing a voice, a seductive voice. She reported the voice was an astral spirit who promised her with the power to heal the sick. Mm. Now again, just like when we talked about Houdini, but certainly with her background, her story, it makes sense that she would want to do that not only on a personal level to save someone like her husband who you know died unexpectedly but in her profession as a as a nurse yeah she and her boyfriend at the time a guy named Gerald went on a 6 month long road trip she had quit her job at St. Joseph Hospital her and Gerald had become obsessed with following the voices calls overnight 
She abandoned her children, and they went out on the six-month road trip. They'd driven for days, finally. Following the voices beckoning calls to Gunflint Trail, a long road that cut through the wilderness. And at the very end of it, they parked next to this lake called Loon Lake. Snow was everywhere, man. It's freezing cold. It quickly covered the surface of the, you know, the car. It was all over the lake surface. And they sat there waiting in the car for a month. Sheriff deputies had even noticed the car and approached them. And when they did, they said that they were researching hyperthermia for a university thesis. Now, these these, uh, deputies were kind of confused and were just like, well, I mean, they're not breaking any law. And they're just like, weirdo hippies, right? They died, didn't they? Just wait. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Gerald basically was kind of getting fed up. And he gets, look, he said, we've got to go. And she says, we've got to stay here. They're going to be here. I know it. I can feel it. They're almost here. And, you know, he pleaded with her. And then all of a sudden he said that in her eyes, she just looked distant, almost Mm. empty, as if her spirit had left her body and drifted away. Wow. And then one morning on the main road through town, this guy driving in a construction or a truck noticed a man who looked like a living nightmare, basically crawling through knee deep snow. It was Gerald confused, sick, gaunt. And he told the construction worker that Laverne desperately needed help. He led them over there and, um, you know, of course she had, she had passed away. Now this was in 1982. And it's interesting because if you look up in the archives of this news article, the headline reads, Woman Freezes to Death in UFO Vigil. And it's interesting because wow. in the news, they reported it as her waiting for UFOs. However, in most of her accounts and stuff, she never mentions UFOs. So I wonder yeah, that's if weird. this is one of those things where they're trying to be like, well, we don't want to mention astral projection because then, you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. They just, I mean, that's like a, that's a common thing. I mean, it's this, mm-hmm. it's the same, you know, sort of game plan as, you know, creating terms like conspiracy theorists. Because the second mm-hmm. they throw that out, you know, right. half your population is going to be like, oh, they're, they're a yeah. fruit cake. Yep. You know. Around that same time, we're now leading into a, a time period where the government programs that had anything to do with astral projection go dark. There's not really any more leaks. There's not really any more real strong sort of government-funded, at least publicly, uh, studies. It's almost as if like the, the press attention to astral projection just dried up, kind of winding down a little bit. It's interesting because authorities kind of pulled a U-turn about reporting Robert and Tazizik's death cause. You know, initially they tested him for everything, right? I, I said that all of his vitals, his organ systems, everything was in great order. They couldn't figure out what could have caused it. Well, later they pulled this U-turn and basically said, oh, he actually died of a cocaine overdose. Oh, yeah. We just discovered it. Never drank, didn't do any drugs, barely even ate ice cream, apparently. Wow. So all this stuff started to disappear. 
books went out of print, disappearing from shelves. People who tried astral projection techniques in, in the past began to find out that they didn't work in the same way. The portal potentially seemed to have closed up. I mean, this is straight up Stranger Things. It, it is, man. Sure. And what's interesting, though, is some yogi who had learned the practices and passed it down through generations were actually horrified about some of the things that they were, you know, hearing about and, and being whispered about. People had talked about victims in the astral planes being manipulated, stalked, hunted down. Those that were steeped in these traditions of astral projection knew that if any entity of darkness had been released, the fugitive presence could take any number of forms in ultimate chameleon and may never be able to be undone. Now, I'm going to close it out with this, man. And this is a fact that I did not know, which is nuts because, you know, I'm kind of fascinated by this true crime stuff. Mm-hmm. Remember what I just said, right? If there was some sort of dark entity, people that had been passing this tradition on for thousands of years, so experts, right, have said that it could take on a number of forms and could be the ultimate chameleon. In the 80s, an estimated 200 serial murders occurred. Mm. Okay? I'm going to give you two quotes. One by a guy named Herbert Mullen. Or not quotes, but like reports. Reportedly, he was into astral projection. Now, in case you're not into true crime, you have no idea who that is. He was a serial killer in the late 70s. He killed, thir- or I'm sorry, in the early 70s, who killed 13 people in California. David Berkowitz, otherwise known as the son of Sam, mm-hmm. uh, was also into astral projection. Charles Manson reportedly studied it to use AP to get people to do his bidding. And even the Laverne Landis sort of event where she like went out and all the things she described actually parallels uh, this scribe's account in an ancient Egyptian text of his experience basically coming across Amut in the astral plane and then being able to escape. So here's here's another little bit of pretty amazing uh, sort of synchronicity or coincidence, if you will. Also, all of the major um, serial killers mm-hmm. also had or like at the time that they were, you know, caught or whatever, or had previously had connections with the CIA. Yeah. Like, I think there's like a picture with Eisenhower's wife with the Night Stalker. Hmm. And he's like in the office and everything. Like, once you start looking into this, it, and, and I think too with this, I think there is some overlap between the MK Ultra program, hmm. the Project Monarch program, Project Stargate. Stargate, but there's like a mind control element that sort of has some overlap in this. So I wonder if I wonder if there's some connectivity with, with all that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Edward Pullman, who had been monitored by intelligence agencies uh, when he ran the Dallas Astral Projection Lab, received some more interest from the government when questioned in 1977 by the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives Committee on Assassinations. Pullman had been a business partner of Lee Harvey Oswald's assassin, Jack Ruby. And some speculated Pullman had practiced hypnotism on Ruby. There we go. Gateway to guiding his subjects into astral projection. There we go. I know this was a long one. Mm -hmm. I know we talked about a lot of stuff, a lot of out there concepts. Mm -hmm. 
But man, whenever I came across this stuff, I couldn't help it. It connects to our talks about dreams. It mm-hmm. connects to what we're going to dive into in the future with you know other projects, things that have happened, things yeah. that have been experimented and worked on and funded by the taxpayer. Yeah. Wild stuff, man. One little thing before we close out, and it's a little tidbit with uh, you know on this topic that has always been like one of my favorite things. So we'll sort of work backwards. So there was a law passed, and I think it was in the 90s or maybe late 80s, where if you were a government official and you were publicly given a gift, well, in the, in the 90s or the late 80s, it was basically mandated that you could not accept a gift, Right. Right. But up until that point, if you were given some sort of gift, you know, say somebody's like, hey, here's a here's a, a gold bar. Here's, you know, whatever, like, things that you would be given, you know, say you're, you know, uh, international, like, bu- bureaucracy and stuff. If you received anything, you would they would put it in a, like, a supply, like, storage room until you were out of office. Well, the cool thing about this is it was actually given up in like, you know, sort of previously unreleased documents from the Soviet Union that the reason they did that is because what these sort of psychic spies or third eye spies, as they were called uh, back in the day, what they would do is say, say I'm like a, in the Soviet Union and an American comes in. Well, I have an item. Say I have a gold bar and I'm a remote viewer or like a, you know, quote unquote, like mind reader, whatever. I would become I would become like attuned or accustomed to this item, right? Mm-hmm. And so then I give it to this bureaucrat who takes it back home, puts it up in his oh. his house in Virginia. I can locate him twice as easy now because I know where this item is. It's mm. giving off a signal in the astral plane, so I can go right to him at any time and spy on him. I mean, just Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> but I thought that was so cool that it. it it got to the point where it became an official protocol or law that, like, if you did receive something, they had to keep it. Off. Oh, and it was like off, off location in like a storage facility until you were out of office. I Man, think that's really cool. That's super cool. I'm gonna end it with this. This is straight from the CIA document which, by the way, was declassified September 10th, 2003. Mm. So, I mean. 20 years ago, yep. but the original date was like 9th of June, 1983. Mm-hmm. This study is certainly not designed to be the last word on the subject, but I hope that the validity of its basic structure and of the fundamental concepts upon which it is based will make it a useful guide for other USA INSCOM personnel who are required to take the gateway training or work with gateway materials. Signed, Wayne M. McConnell, LTCMI Commander. Man. Incredible, man. Man, dude, that's amazing. Well, if you would like to find us, head on over to Instagram, uh, leave us a message, drop a comment to us, tell us how much you like the show. We have, we're overjoyed when we get these. We got one recently that was, it just kind of blew my mind. We, you know, any kind of interaction with you guys is is always a bonus for us. If you want to tell us an urban legend in your area, a local legend, a cryptid thing, maybe a paranormal encounter, feel free to drop us a DM on Instagram or uh, head on over to thatwouldberadpod at gmail.com. 
if you would like to tell it in your own voice and hopefully have it, we put some sound design to it and make it sound spooky and cool, possibly for Halloween, our October Spooktacular. Uh, we'd love to have it. You can do that over at thatwouldberadpodcast.com uh, on our website. There you can also you know, go to a multitude of, of uh, platforms to listen to the show. While you're doing that, leave us a five-star review. Go tell a single friend about the show, that weird friend you know at, at your local Blockbuster. I'm sure he would, he or she would, would absolutely love it too. Uh, it means the world to us. It does a lot for us, especially leaving those five-star reviews. It helps trigger that algorithm in our favor. If you want more of what you love here on the free feed, head on over to our Patreon, The Rabbit Trail, uh, where it's a little looser, it's a little goosier, and uh, it's, like I said, it's more of what you love. Yeah, It's um, also a good I, archive of all the top secret information mm, that we were able to get our hands on that you can too. That's true, man. That is absolutely true. You've probably already listened to this, but it was this past Saturday was Batman Day. So I hope you all went to your local comic shop and picked up some Batman stuff, uh, specifically The Gargoyle of Gotham by Raphael mm-hmm. Grandpa. It's incredible. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if you haven't got it yet and it's past Batman Day, after the show, go get it. I guess that's about it. You got anything else, Wood? I think that's it, man. All right, pal. Well, we love you, we appreciate you, and as always, be rad. That's the way it That's the way it 
access granted. Hello, my friend. Hello, my friend. Oh, that's oh my gosh, <laughs> dude! Have you seen that? Have you seen that meme where it's like um, it's it's like some lady and she's like me trying to tell my kids it's time to you know rushing them out the door for school or whatever, and then it cuts to that that scene of Michael Scott doing shut it. it, it. <laughs> No. Shut it. Oh my god, dude! It's so it's so true and so. Funny. Yeah, that's definitely pretty accurate. I, get a little tired of this. You volunteered, didn't you? We're paying you, aren't we? Yeah, but I didn't know you were going to be giving me electric shocks. What are you trying to prove here, anyway? I'm studying the effect of negative reinforcement on ESP ability. The effect? I'll tell you what the effect is. It's pissing me off. Well, then maybe my theory is correct. You can keep the five bucks I've had. I will, mister. You may as well get used to that. It's the kind of resentment that your ability is going to provoke in some people. Oh, you're Shh. Good.